0: We like having the young ones in here because we believe that the Word of God is quick and profitable and powerful for all ages and all, um, even our youngins. Uh, and then on occasion, there are Song of Solomon moments in the Bible um, where the Scripture is written for a different, uh, different audience in a different age um, today. So if you'd like to answer those questions, at some point you're going to have to. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, Children's Church is out now too. There is no kids story today um, because we have so many other things offered for the kids today so sorry. Um, But Pastor Matt will be ready for you next week, so thank you for that clarification. Children's Church, you're dismissed now, Um, and then bigger kids um, are dismissed as well. And if you're 30 and you're just like, I don't want to be in here, um, you're welcome to go help. Brother Joseph, he will love to have your uh, help there as well. I want to say welcome to Courtney's family that's here with us this morning. I've met many of you, and I don't know, some of you have been here, I think, on a Sunday before, but anyway, it's really good to have y'all here with us this morning as well. Okay, we've had a lot of folks visiting our church here recently, so we pushed some of the rows forward. So, Jamie, Jordan, like, you're just right here. Like, if I say something really good, just stand up and give me a high five right there, man. That'll be great. Okay, please take out your Bibles and open them to First Corinthians, First Corinthians chapter seven. This morning, we're going to look at verses one through sixteen. I really debated. Uh, you have to. Um, Miss Vicky Moore might have one of the hardest ministries in our church because she has to interact so directly with me week after week, and I will, where is she? I know she's in here. Yeah, sometimes I'm like, I think I'm just going to take these verses, and then it's, no, I'm going to preach the whole chapter. No, I'm going to, so she never knows what I'm going to do from week to week. I try to plan out a month or so in advance. I thought at one point I was going to preach all of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 at, in just one sermon, and there's just so much here for us, and I'm not in any big hurry. We're going to be here this Sunday, and then next Sunday, we're going to, you know what we're going to do next Sunday? We're going to open the Word of God, and we're going to learn from the Word of God next Sunday. And then the Sunday after that, we're going to do it again, just like we've been doing for years here at Liberty. And so, um, you know, there are, there are other wonderful ministries that, that preach maybe more series and topically oriented. Well, we just kind of let the Word of God tell us the series, and right now we're in a marriage series. Um, because that's what Paul is addressing, to his friends, his brothers and sisters, who had started a small church in a city that was as bad as ours. A culture that was as sinful as the world that we live in today, the city of Corinth. And so Paul continues this letter. You got to remember, chapter and verse divisions were not part of this letter that he wrote to his brothers and sisters there. They these chapter and verse divisions just kind of help us find our place, right? If I said, turn to Corinthians and go to that part about marriage, right? Some of you, by the time I'm done, would maybe be finding. But we have chapters and verses to help us find our way around. And Paul, throughout the book of Corinthians, there are several times where he uses this phrase. He says this, now, considering this matter. Now, considering that matter. And that's kind of letting us know he's jumping into a new, a new topic. So here in verse 1. Paul's saying, now, considering the matter about which you wrote. So, the brothers and sisters at Corinth had written Paul a letter with some questions and some comments. They needed his his care in their life. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. I, I believe that that's a quotation from the letter that they had written to Paul. Many of your Bibles will have that sentence in quotation marks. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Now conjugal rights, that's not a phrase that we use very often, that's not something that many of us even really understand what that means, that's just talking about sexual intimacy. A husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the, hus- uh, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And in this next sentence, in this time in history and in this culture, this is a scandalous statement for Paul to make next. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, and again, this is referring to sexual intimacy. Do not deprive one another of sexual intimacy, except perhaps by agreement, mutual agreement, for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, a fasting and prayer kind of situation. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession not a command I say this I wish that all were as myself as, excuse me as I myself am Paul Paul was a single man but each has his own gift from God one of one kind singleness and another of another marriage to the unmarried and the widows I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. And when Paul says this, when Paul says, not I, but the Lord, or the Lord, but not I, what, what he's saying there is this, God has previously given us teaching on this. I'm, I'm referencing earlier teaching from Christ or from the scriptures. So Paul is saying, this, this is not my apostolic authority uh, exclusively. The Lord has already given us teaching on this. Um, where did I leave off? Verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Pause. When, when people were coming to Christ in the city of Corinth, there were couples who were already married who were both unbelievers. On occasion, a husband would be converted without his wife being converted, or a wife would be converted without the husband being converted. This is, these are those to whom he's addressing, this young church there in the city of Corinth. Verse 14, for the hu- unbelieving husband is made holy. Uh, that word there is, is sanctified because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. The idea there is he may become saved. He's, in a, he's, in, he's living in proximity to a Christian and has the gospel being regularly shared through this person's life and testimony and word. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Again, they're in a sanctified uh, family, because of this believing, um, one of the believing spouses. But, verse 15, if the unbelieving partner separates, right, we've heard of this kind of thing happening before. I, I have a friend who this happened to. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or, or sister who was abandoned is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, just because we can't preach everything every single Sunday, we're gonna stop there. There's still a flow of thought through the rest of the passage. And next week, many of our Bibles are really helpful. Verses 17 through 24 talk about living as you're called. And we're gonna talk about that. What does it mean that God calls us to salvation and how do we live that way? And then the week after that, we're gonna talk about um, some principles regarding marriage and singleness, that sort of thing, okay? So um, Paul's still making one big argument. Really, he's making a big argument with the entirety of the book of First Corinthians. Um, but for this morning's sake, for the message that we have here together this morning, this is where we're going to stop our reading, and we're going to give our attention to verses 1 through 16. Father, please help us. I ask that you would help me to communicate clearly I pray that you would help my brothers and sisters who are tired and they're in a nice, comfortable room and a nice, comfortable seat. I pray that they would stay tuned in and alert. Spirit of God, come and just be working in ways that, that even, even we individually may not be perfectly aware of. Father, I pray that you would work in us. I pray that you would convict us of sin where we need to be convicted of sin. I pray that all of us would be comforted with the gospel this morning. Father, for the singles that are single in the room, I pray that they would see that singleness is good. For those who are married, I pray that they would see that marriage is good. And that obeying you and knowing you is great. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Ask many young singles about their singleness. We here at Liberty in the last, I don't know, three or four years have had a bunch of singles come who are no longer singles. They're now young marrieds, and that's wonderful. I love that. Ask many young singles about their life circumstances, and they will express a desire for marriage, someone to to share life with. Someone to to be physically intimate with. Someone to be emotionally intimate with. Someone to converse with and have conversation. This is what many young singles will express to you. Ask many older married people about their life circumstances, and they will express a desire for singleness. Sharing life with the person that they once dreamed about sharing life with hasn't been the fairy tale dream that they hoped it would be. Intimacy isn't what they thought it would be. The conversations that once occupied hours happens very little with this person anymore. And we, we kind of laugh about it, right? I mean, I wrote that. I knew it would be funny. I knew you'd chuckle there. What does this say? Think about this for a second. Think about those two sets of circumstances and think about what that actually does now, though, communicate that those who are single are dreaming about this, this thing that will bring them happiness or joy. Great Sunday school lesson from Matt this morning on that topic. And the fact that those who are married and have finally gotten that thing that they so long dreamt for and maybe now feel like they've so long been stuck with. What does this say? What does this say about us? And I don't want to be too terribly discouraging with you if you feel either of those things. Because neither singleness nor marriage is what we're ultimately made for and neither singleness nor marriage is where you will find ultimate satisfaction and you know if your spouse is sitting next to you and you want to say amen and you're scared to (laughs) i understand that as well my whole family is sitting on the front row it's gonna get awkward here in a minute here's the main point this morning I I said it in my prayer, and I said it in my prayer on purpose. Singleness and marriage, they're both good. They're both good. But obeying God is great. And I'm going to show you from this passage, I think it's what Paul is arguing for, what he's explaining to a church that had some really messed up understanding of singleness and marriage and sex think about the world we live in. Is it very clear on singleness or marriage or sex? No. The Bible is intensely relevant. It's so relevant. I'm so thankful that I don't have to come up with topic after topic week after week. I just preach through the Bible, and God just puts it right in front of us. Hey, you're living in a world that's messed up. Here's some things to unmess you up. Singleness and marriage are both good. We also know that singleness and marriage can both be incredibly difficult. Look, If you're a single young person and I'm interacting with you and and counseling you and talking with you about things, I, I assume for most in my interactions with you, I assume that your desire is to be married. I also have an assumption for married couples. My assumption, my operating assumption, when I begin interacting with you, here's my assumption, that your marriage is hard, that it's troubled, that you have or are or soon will walk through very challenging circumstances related directly, not to, oh, my wife and I, you know, had a loved one in our family die and that's been really hard for us. No, I mean like you and your spouse are having trouble. And it's, that's my operating assumption, not because I think you're a bad person. It's not even my operating assumption because my marriage is hard at times. It's really sweet here lately. I think I'll have to check with her at lunch. I mean, I say, it, what's that? Yeah, I'm just saying that. Angie will be honest with you. I, I, and I mean, also, I make this very clear. Like, we have sought out pastoral counseling for our, specifically for our marriage. This is not an unusual thing. I always tell people, look, premarital counseling, yes, I highly recommend it. Postmarital counseling, absolutely necessary. It's absolutely necessary. Absolutely necessary. I know it's sad, but it's true. Here's my three ways that I want us to walk through this passage, three points this morning. Number one, get married or stay single. That's point number one. Point number two, act married. And by that, that's where I'm I'm using that as a synonym for render conjugal rights. Act married or pray. Point three, stay married or let them go. Okay, point number one. Point number one, get married or stay single. Kind of takes the air out of it, doesn't it? Number one, or verse one, now concerning the matters about what you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And there's a couple different ways our Bibles translate this. Some make it seem like Paul is saying, hey, it's good to be single and to not have sex, and so it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Don't get married. I think what's happening here is they've written this letter to him, and he says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, not to, not to have sex with a woman. Uh, but let me, let, me, let me fix some of your misguided thinking about that. Remember last week we talked about how that the Corinthian culture had kind of separated out spiritual from physical and physical things were bad, and you, you kind of did them, and it was okay, but it didn't matter because physical things weren't the things that were going to last forever, and spiritual things were where things really happened. Well, some, their pendulum had swung, and they just thought, we're going to be austere and aesthetic, and we're not, we're not going to engage in any kind of physical pleasure whatsoever, and that's going to re- that will make us spiritual. I think they're asking, Paul, hey, we're refraining entirely from sexual activity. That's that's right, right? That's good, right? Paul says in verse 2, But because of sexual temptation to sin, to sin, to immorality, let each man have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. Jump down to verse 6. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself am, as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of, the, of another. To the married and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than burn with passion. First, we see that Paul says throughout this chapter that he believes that being single is good, and he wishes others would do it. And if you're single, stay as you are. Now, why? is Paul saying these things. I I have to confess, when I started studying this passage in depth at the beginning of this last week, I I didn't like the way Paul talked about marriage. It sounded to me like he was saying, being single is best. And that's how you can serve the Lord best. But since you don't have the self-discipline that I have, since you're tempted in ways that spiritual people like me aren't tempted, go ahead and get married. Yeah, like, I've, I've, that's how I was kind of reading what Paul was saying here. But I knew that just overall in Scripture, marriage is communicated throughout the Scriptures as this really wonderful, blessed thing, like we talked about last week. It's, a, it's an illustration. It's an image of a more real thing. And, and God looks at Adam in the garden before sin has even entered the garden, and God looks at him and says, it's not good that I leave that guy alone. I'm going to make a helper for him. So I know that the, the big teaching in Scripture... Is that marriage is good? And here's what had happened in Corinth. The Jews throughout the ages had taken that teaching, that it's not good for a man to be alone, and blessed is the man who finds a wife, and you know she'll do him good all his days, and the Proverbs thirty-one, woman and what she does, uh, you know, for uh, for a man, that sort of thing. And and they had they had begun to, and here in the city of Corinth, even many of the Christians had begun to look at marriage as the only good thing, the only way to live your life in a way that pleases God. And so Paul is writing to them and is explaining this. Look, marriage is good. But singleness, if that's God's gift to you, that's a good thing too. Singleness is good. Singleness is not a plague. Singleness is not a curse. Singleness is not a thing to be shamefully endured until you can, You know, just got to find some other warm body that's willing to say I do and go, you know, and go hurry up and get married because that's the good, that's the better. And so what Paul is doing is he's saying this, it's actually, it's good. Even singleness is good. They would have said singleness is bad, but Paul is saying singleness is good. And Paul is saying God gives everyone a gift. He gives them in this context, the gift of singleness or the gift of marriage. And we know both from the scriptures and experientially, that to most people, he does give the gift of marriage. And we're gonna talk a lot more about this in two weeks when I talk about verses 25 through 40. But there is a unique and special blessing when you're single. You are, ask any married, if you're single, ask any married family in here. As a single person, you have the ability to serve God in ways that is unique only to singleness, right? You, you can go anywhere, do anything. You want to go on a missions trip for three months, six months, six years. You, I mean, you're not, you want to stay out late ministering to people, uh, you know, downtown. You want to work at the soup kitchen. You want to, right? Like there, there is a freedom. Some of us, some of you know this. Your spouse takes the kids away for a few days and you're getting all kinds of stuff done. You're getting projects done at home. You're staying up late working on stuff, right? Like, you know, you're eating peanut butter crackers and a banana for, for dinner when you used to have to spend an hour and a half getting ready for dinner, right? Like, there, there is something that we all acknowledge that as a single person, there is a capacity to serve the Lord in a way. I'm not saying that married people can't serve the Lord. Married people do serve the Lord. You, you I mean, again, I'm preaching to people who are serving the Lord actively here. But Paul is saying, listen. I, I'm able to go from city to city to city. And when Paul says, I wish you all could be like me, I hope that we hear in Paul's voice the blessing of singleness. When he says, I wish you could all be like me, I get to, I've gone on missionary journey after missionary journey after missionary. I've been all over the place. I get thrown in jail, but I don't worry about it too much. Right? My wife and kids, are like, I don't worry about them. I wish that everyone was able. I love, I love, he says, as a concession, not as a command. I love this so much, I wish you all could be this way. Does that, does that mean by that, that we should all stay single? Well, of course not. What is the gift that God has given to you? Paul was happy, joyful. No, I'm not sure which word to use. Matt's got me paranoid after Sunday. No, I'm kidding. He was joyful for sure, and sometimes happy about his singleness. Can you can you be content and joyful and obedient to the call that God has given you in your life as a single person? And for some, the answer is yes, I can. But that's not the only. That's not the only. Um, Question. That's not the only factor that Paul says give consideration to about being single. He also says, asks this question: can, can you remain? Can you remain sexually pure? Can you behave yourself? Can you be clean sexually as a single person? Again, in verse two. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife. And each woman, her own husband. And again, I, I spent a lot of time talking about the meaning of marriage and the meaning of sex last week. The questions are, can you be content? Can you be sexually pure? And a, a, a third point that I think Paul is alluding to here is that he's inferring in this passage is, how can you obey God best with your life? Remember I said single, singleness is good, marriage is good, obeying God is great. I think Paul's getting at this idea. How can you, will you obey God and his call on your life best as a single person? Or will you obey God and his call on your life best as a married person? And for many, that answer is, I'll obey God best. I'll obey his call to sexual purity best. I'll obey his call for me to uh, rule and subdue the earth best by being married. I think it's important to remember that Paul in verse 26, and like I said, we'll get to this in a couple weeks, but look at verse 26 real quick. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. We aren't told specifically what that present distress is. You can read you read, you know, read, commentaries, read history books, and many believe that there was a, a, a severe period of famine during this time where Paul is writing to the Corinthians Right, and families are wondering how they're going to get food for their, for their families, that sort of thing. So there's something at this time that's affecting the church at Corinth, and Paul is saying, Hey, you know how hard and bad things are right now? Right, like, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, we were walking through COVID, and right, there were things that we said, and we said things like, Hey, during this time, things are hard, and let's. And so Paul is referencing something that's hard, and he says, Given the fact that things are so hard right now, look, there are some, some distinct advantages to being single right now. I can, I can obey God quickly, easily, better by remaining single. I think the main thing that Paul is doing is helping people know singleness is good. Marriage is good. Can you be content? Can you be pure? Can you obey God? This is how you're going to make the decision as to whether or not God has singleness or marriage in your life. Note, note that marriage in this passage, that marriage is one of God's ways to help us fight against sexual sin, specifically in this section of verses that we're looking at right here, sexual fornication. Fornication is uh, sexual sin uh, that doesn't involve a married, a married individual. Adultery is when one party is married. Um, and again, when we, when we start diving into these passages, um, just remember this. Some of you may start thinking, oh man, he's talking about me. He's thinking about me. Nope, I'm not thinking about you. I'm thinking about us. There, there's no one in here who escapes. There's no one in here who hasn't sinned sexually with their body or in their mind. We are all, we're all guilty. But God has provided a way, a right way for the sexual relationship to image marriage and to, to be, a, a, um, excuse me, to image Christ and his bride. I want to talk for just a minute about the temptation to sexual immorality. Remember, sex is good. Sex is Christian. It's distinctly Christian. We didn't evolve into uh, you know, um, heterosexual relationships just because that's how nature works best. We, that, that wasn't something that people were sitting around one day and they said, you know what we should do? We should, we should pair up. And that's how, that's how we're gonna you know, continue to advance the human civilization. God is the one who gave us marriage. He gave us sex within marriage. These are good things and there's nothing wrong. And in fact, everything right with having sex with your spouse. But Satan, oh, Satan does what he does so well. He takes a good thing and he twists it, messes it up. He distorts it. He wants to use a good thing to achieve evil uh, purposes and, and uh, evil intent in, in our lives. He wants to tempt us to take a beautiful gift and use it in a way that isn't beautiful and isn't legitimate. In a sermon titled, Satan Uses Sexual Desire, one of my favorite pastors and authors, John Piper, says this. There is a very simple truth at work here. And he's talking about sexual temptation. am I gonna ask for a raise of hand if I asked how many of you have been tempted sexually in your life. Everyone's, both of everyone's hands needs to shoot straight up. There's a simple truth at work here. The more strongly we feel sexual desire, the more susceptible we are to being deceived that it's not wrong to satisfy that sexual desire through fornication or adultery or pornography or self-stimulation. This same truth holds in all the areas of our lives. Think about this. The stronger our desire for some satisfaction, the more vulnerable we are to being deceived about what is right and wrong and the way we try to satisfy the desire. Let me read that one more time. Think, think in terms of food. The stronger our desire for something or alcohol or anything, the stronger our desire for something, the more vulnerable we are to being deceived about what is right and wrong in the way we try to satisfy the desire. And then he gives that really helpful illustration. That's why, for example, if you and your fiancé wait until you're in a home alone to decide what is right and wrong about fornication, you will almost surely decide in favor of it. Satan takes the desire that is a good desire given by God. Satan takes the desire. I lost my place. Satan takes the desire and uses its power. He uses its power to make his proposal seem plausible. We're already committed to each other. We already love each other. We're going to be married soon. We had best do our moral reflection when desire is at low ebb so that when the waves of satanic rationalizations break over our brain at the moment of temptation we will have an anchor of truth that won't be swept away by the life that seems to feel so good. Ask yourself, ask yourself this, how many of the deep regrets in my life came about because of sexual desires that were fulfilled outside of God's plans? Marriage is a way. It's not the only way. It's not a foolproof way. Marriage is one of the ways that God has given us to fight against that sin. Unless maybe your marriage is really unsatisfactory, which is the next issue that Paul's going to address here. Look in verses three through five. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not, do not, deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer but then come together again so that satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control this brings me to point number two act married act married render conjugal rights the only time you don't do that is when you're committed to stop and pray act married or pray Many of us are informed about sex from Hollywood, some of us are old enough that we didn't have smartphones and internet pornography, magazines, locker room talk, nowadays Google searches, right? This is how many, even well-meaning, godly, Christian people were informed about sexual intimacy From godless sources, friends, we're gonna. There's there's more packed into these three verses than may you may realize at first glance. In the world that we live in, so often in Hollywood or social media, sex is portrayed as this voracious appetite in you that you reach out and satisfy. Right, I'm hungry. So I'm going to eat a Big Mac. I'm sexually desirous, so I'm going to find the meal to, to satisfy that craving. This passage of Scripture is making it clear that sex and your sexualness is a gift. It's actually something that you give away. Sex isn't something you take from someone else. It's not your appetite to be satisfied. Sex is a gift to be given. And this is so often abused in marriage. The, the Bible makes it clear that sex isn't just your appetite to be, to be gratified. I, be, I believe the Bible leads us to the conclusion that stimulating yourself for sexual pleasure by yourself, that's a sin. Why? Because sex is a gift given to be given. Often, in marriage, when, when it's just about you and your appetite, you're just, you're just using your spouse's body for your own pleasure. Think about this. You're selfish and thoughtless and rude all day. And then you want your spouse to serve you. And then after, afterwards, you give no regard to them. You don't talk with them. You don't pay attention to them. How do I know that that's a real thing? Because I'm a sinner. I don't need anyone else's life to show me how quickly and easily it is for us to take rather than give. And if that's you... You don't, you don't understand sexual intimacy. You're only concerned about your own pleasure. And here what Paul is, is doing is he's doing something that's so, so wildly countercultural. I mean, the city of Corinth, this is like bizarro. Like, what are you, what are you talking about, Paul? Both, both husband and wife must give their body to the other. This is, this is radical in this culture. In this culture, in the, in the people to whom Paul is writing, a man would have a wife to bear his children, and he would have mistresses for his sexual pleasure. He would have concubines. He would engage with prostitutes in the shrines. He would have mistresses. But fun was not between he and his wife. That was, that was a purely kind of, you know, think about, think about the future, let's have some kids. And here Paul is saying, no, 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 a husband and a wife, that's it, and you give to one another. And God is actually saying something through Paul that's, uh, that's, and I alluded to it when I read through the passage, that the husband and wife are on equal footing. This is is radical as well. Serve each other. God wants there to be an out-serving competition that's constantly going on in your marriage. How can I out-serve my spouse? How can I give and show and self-sacrifice, like Jesus, right, laid himself down, so that he could bring life to someone else. How can you, and think about how good a marriage would be if both parties were constantly trying to think, how can I show good? How can I give life? How can I show honor? And many of us experience this. Maybe not every single day of our lives, but you know how sweet it can be. And Paul is saying this. He's also saying sex is to be engaged in frequently. Regularly, don't defraud, don't deprive giving it to one another. Sex isn't a bargaining chip. It's not something to be withheld until I get what I want. It's to be given for the good of the other. Sex can be refrained from for a limited time for the sake of fasting and prayer. He mentions that here in verse five. But... But this is the only reason given to wait on that. And it's by agreement, right? We've agreed that for a limited time, we are going to to abstain from this for the purpose of uh, fasting and prayer. And this passage also informs us that sex in marriage is one of God's ways. Remember, in the first verses, I talked about how that marriage is God's way to help singles avoid fornication. Rendering conjugal rights is God's way to help married people avoid adultery. It's not everything. But Jesus, God, says this is one of the ways that you help each other remain pure within your marriage. I mean, it's, it's, it's in the passage, right? Um, Come together again in verse 5 so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self control. Sex and marriage is one of God's ways to help us fight against fornication. So be mindful. Be mindful of your spouse's desires. Look, there are times where one is tired and the other isn't. T- you just be mindful of your spouse's desires. Seek to serve the other. If your spouse is exhausted, be thoughtful and kind. If your spouse is burning with passion, be thoughtful and kind. God is using it to help each other fight against fornication. Practically speaking, what 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 do you mean against adultery? What do you mean, Jeremy, that when sex and marriage is good, it helps me fight against adultery? If I've just had a really wonderful Thanksgiving meal at my house, I'm not inclined to go to Al'sips for a burrito. That's what that means. I don't know that I'm really ever tempted to go to subs for a burrito. I know I've just offended a bunch of people in here. It's like your daily nourishment. Practically speaking, oh, I can get myself in so much trouble if I spend too much time on this. Let me just say this. I'm not looking at anybody. I'm not thinking of anybody. Keep yourself, keep yourself attractive as a gift for your spouse. Communicate regularly as a gift for your spouse. Please know, please know this. We're informed. We're informed by Hollywood. We're informed by social media. Okay. Is it even possible, if I worked out every day as hard as I possibly could, is it even possible for me to be as strong as Captain America in the Marvel movies? Yes or no? Is it possible? It's not possible. It's impossible. Why? Because Captain America isn't real. It's a, it's a story. It's fictitious. That's not how muscles work in real world. Listen to me, this is incredibly important. The images, the portrayal of sexual intimacy in Hollywood are just as fantastic as the depiction of Captain America and his muscles, okay? So if you're getting your information through pornography, if you're getting your information through social media, if you're getting your information through Hollywood and then you have your spouse and you're going, this is not, nothing. Like, like if, my wa- if Angie was really upset with me because I wasn't like Captain America, I would say, babe, you got the wrong expectation of what I'm capable of. That same truth applies sexually in, in, in uh, the sexual relationship with, with uh, husband and wife. So set your expectations biblically, which likely means lowering them. Lower your expectations. I've had good conversations with some other married people in here about that topic recently. And know this. Let me give, let me give a word of hope here for just a moment. Know this. I, I love being a pastor. One of the things I love about being a pastor is I get to have so many intimate conversations with so many different people. I want you to hear this. I want you to know this because some of you feel like you're the only couple that's ever struggled in the area of sexual intimacy. Or you might think right now I'm the only, we're the only couple that is struggling with this, right? Like, Teenagers figure out how to do this. It's all over the internet. Like, obviously, what? Listen, a lot of people, a lot of married couples struggle in this area. Talk to a counselor, talk to a pastor, um, talk to a doctor, talk to a nurse. Don't feel like you're weird. You aren't. There's so much more to a good marriage than sex. So much more. You can be married without even having sex physically, right? Like there are people who are handicapped who are, who are married to one another. But for the most part, as a rule of thumb, you can't fix a bad marriage with sex, but you can often gauge where a marriage is based on their sex life, on, on your sex life, right? So it's a thermometer, not a thermostat, right? It's a thermometer, not a thermostat. You know the difference, right? Thermometer, you can set the temperature in the room. No. Thermostat, you can set the temperature in the room. Thermometer tells you the temperature of the room. Uh, often a couple's sex life is a thermometer. It kind of tells us where, where, where are we. Thirdly, lastly, stay married or let them go. Why would I say both of those things? Stay married or let them go. Well, the passage says both of those things. I'm not going to read all of these verses right here. Well, I'll, I'll reference back up into them several times. Verses 10 through 16. In these first couple of verses here, Paul is reminding us of what Jesus has already reminded us of, what the Old Testament makes clear. No divorce. God, God, God's will is, is not for divorce, ever. It's never his will. It's never his desire for a couple to be divorced. The exception clause in Matthew seems to allow for that. Um, and you can't... Uh, yeah, so... Again, this is not meant to be uh, this morning. I'm not trying to cover uh, everything about divorce and marriage and remarriage. He says this, though. There is something very specific in regards to this topic that Paul does address. To the rest, Paul says, stay married, if at all possible. As people were coming to Christ in the city of Corinth, sometimes an individual would come to faith in Christ, but their spouse wouldn't. And I alluded to this earlier in the, in the text. And if at all possible, Paul said, stay married, stay married to the unbelieving spouse. If it's at all possible, because listen, God might use your salvation to bring to salvation your unsaved spouse and your children. What hope will they have of coming to know Christ without you being there in the family? But if the unbelieving partner says, I'm out of here, I married you, and you weren't a Jesus freak, and now you're a Jesus freak, and that's not what I want to be lumped in with. I don't want anything to do with that. I'm out of here. Paul is saying, listen, if your spouse leaves, you're not, you're not burdened. You're not bound. You're not, you're not stuck. You're actually free, I believe, free to be remarried. And this is certainly, though, let me make this also clear. This is not an excuse to marry someone who isn't a believer, we don't read these passages and go, "Hey, I can marry whoever I want, whether they're a Christian or not. I'm going to marry this non-Christian because this is how God's going to sanctify them." That's not the that's not the uh, circumstances that Paul is addressing. The rest of Scripture makes it abundantly clear, right? Don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Here, Paul is saying, "Look, I realize this situation has arise. Yeah, stay with him because in Corinth there were people that were doing that. They would get saved." And they would have an unbelieving spouse, and they were like, well, I'm a totally different person now, and so I'm going to separate myself. I'm going to divorce this person. uh, So so Paul isn't saying uh, arguing for marrying an unbeliever. Think, Think about this for a second. The fact that Paul is addressing a believer married to an unbeliever suggests the fact that there are just intrinsic challenges to a believer and an unbeliever being married to each other. Of course there is. In 1st Corinthians Paul has already described them as light and darkness. One can see and the other cannot see. One walks according to the prince and the power of the air and the other as a follower of Jesus Christ. One can discern spiritual things and the other cannot. We can't be surprised when two people who value totally different things don't share the same values. You might think they're cute, you might like their personality, you might think that you get along with them well. God says no, no. Practically speaking, as a pastor, one of my convictions is I will marry two believers. I will marry two unbelievers. The gift of marriage is a gift given to all of humanity. Personally, I won't marry a believer and an unbeliever. I haven't even talked with the other pastors in here to even know what their positions are with my fellow elders. That's my personal, that's, that's where I stand because of teaching like this in Scripture. So in conclusion, in conclusion, now we're going to talk more about a lot of these different things because Paul's continuing to make this big argument about how we live our lives, live as you're called. But to conclude this section here this morning, What's, your, what's, my, what's my final call? Well, get married or, or stay single. They're both good. Well, How can you obey God best? Act married. If you're married, act married. Unless you've talked and you're stopping for an agreed upon time of prayer. Get married or not. Act married or pray. Stay married or let them leave. All of this... All of this is in the context of Paul saying, you're not your own, you're bought with a price. Look, I look around the room, and I, we, like everyone in here, when we think about our past, when we think about the sins and the tragedies and the heartbreaks and the, that deals with marriage and sex, and all of us, none of us are sinless, all of us have scars. Here's the beautiful thing. Today, today we can all walk, every single one of us, regardless of our history, regardless of our past. We can walk in the joy of the Lord, in the forgiveness of God, in the perfect fellowship with God, in a marriage or not that is glorifying and honoring to God. Everyone in here can. And all of this is in the context that's because you've been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body, in your marriage, or in your singleness, in your sexuality, or in your celibacy. Singles, You can show that Christ is your treasure by being content in Him while loving and serving Him in the context of your singleness. Your devotion is to Him. Your service is to Him. Your purity is to Him. You're you're motivated by His love and grace. But married person, you can show that Christ is your treasure the exact same way. By being content in Him, while loving and serving Him in the context of your marriage. Your devotion, your self-sacrificing love, your purity, your motivation by His love and grace. All of this happens because you're not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God. Remember, your marriage is a mirror. It's, a, it's a, it rather uh, um, an illustration of uh, the the relationship that Christ has with his bride, the church. Bow your heads, please, and close your eyes. We're going to conclude this time together. I ask the music team to come up here for just a a final song. We've got singles. We've got married. We've got teenagers. We've got divorcees. We've got all, all God's children gathered right here in this room, right where they're supposed to be. Many of us need confrontation and conviction. All of us need comfort. That comfort comes in knowing that there was only one man who was single perfectly, Jesus Christ. There was only one man who was married perfectly, Jesus Christ, to his bride, the church. Let's rejoice in what Christ has done for us and ask for his spirit given help. Let's pray and then we'll uh, sing together. Father, if there's anyone here this morning...